Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another Bald Move Prestige movie. Today, we're going to be talking about 1995's Oscar-winning Leaving Las Vegas, screenplay written and directed by Mike Figgis. Uh, it's starring Nicolas Cage and Elizabeth Shue, and is based on the novel of the same name, Leaving Las Vegas, by John O'Brien, which is semi-autobiographical about his life. Uh, did you know that he was born and raised in Oxford, Ohio, Jim? No, I didn't know that. It's, only, it's less than an hour away from where we live. Um, and like I said, this movie is, uh, is based on a book that's semi-autobiographical about his life and his struggle with alcohol. And you should probably know, if you've never seen this movie before, what you're getting into. Because this 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 person blew their heads off about two weeks before or two weeks after this film was optioned uh, from his book because of his crippling depression. And I guess the fact that he found drinking himself to death to be entirely too slow and inefficient a process. Hmm. This is a this is a bleak bleak uh, movie. Um, yeah. It's it's um, it's 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 very uncomfortable and un- unpleasant at parts to watch and difficult. It's, um, have you seen this movie before? And what did you think of it? No, this is the first time I've seen it. Um, it it's Nicolas Cage, so I've always had like an inkling of oh, maybe I'll go watch it at some point. Um, and I had heard that this is the one he won the Oscar for. And I was like, are you fucking kidding me? How could Nicholas Cage? Like, it must have been an off year, right? It must have been just like there was nothing else out. Um, I kind of think it was, though, wasn't it? It's like 95? this year. You know, the, the eight movies were released. And so one can slip through the cracks. But it turns out this movie is excellent. And Nicholas Cage is excellent. Elizabeth Shue is excellent. They, the, I don't know. I went into it not really knowing what to expect other than I had been warned that it is dark. Um, it is bleak and sad. And that is true. But I also found it f- extremely gripping. Um, yeah, I, I was just kind of drawn into this guy's life and the the way it tells the story, the way it unfolds, like everything about the history of this guy and and why he maybe, you know, is the way he is a little bit um, is really subtle. Um and and pretty powerful, I thought. Yeah, I think um, the story is really efficient in how it sets up. Like you kind of uh, you, you kind of join this guy in his, his his late stage attempt to you know drink himself into an early grave, and they kind of tell you everything you need to know about his life story, how he got there, just a little sketch, you know, where he's from, like what kind of position he he must have had to be able to pull something like this off. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I've seen this movie once before and it's I got to start remembering everything. <laughs> Anytime I'm talking about like a 90s or early 2000s, late 80s film, I always have to think about have I seen it or have I seen the basic cable version Jesus. or have I seen the late night broadcast version? Because this uh, I, I was I was like 30 minutes into this film when I realized, oh, shit, I think I've only seen this on like a, a late night t- a television or basic cable version. And it's the same story, but yeah. there's a lot of things that 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 lack lack a certain amount of of impact. Sure, um, sure. It, it's it's you know, not as bad as watching like Pulp Fiction on basic cable, but yeah, yeah. yes, which is another movie where I think we even talked about. Did, did uh, we do a Pulp, Pulp Fiction? Yeah, that like I think I, the, so. So many of those scenes are just bizarre yeah. and uh, they just don't work when when you take all the crazy things happening off the screen. Um, but yeah, I you know I'm big big Nicolas Cage fan. If you're a long term, uh, long time bald new fan, you know that like Elizabeth Shue is one of my all time screen crushes. You know, kind of much, pretty much fell in love with the Karate Kid, and you know, up through Boys, st- still doing it for me. Um, and it's wild because this movie is kind of peak Elizabeth Shue in terms mm-hmm. of just sex appeal and attractiveness, but it's also the kind of movie that makes me want to cut my dick off and throw it into a fire because uh, it's so anti-sexual um, yeah. or, or anti-sexualization, I guess. Not anti, it's just like nothing no, in this but, movie is sexy. Yeah, it's not anti-sex yeah. or anti-sexy. It's just, it's kryptonite for that kind of that kind of thing. And aside but, from uh, like a, a poolside scene, like that that one is But even good, then, but the like, context of it, if you're... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll talk about it because yeah, if, if you're pervert on that, then you're 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 16 years old and and you don't mm-hmm. have perspective on things. Um, but uh, it is yeah, her walking down the streets of Los Angeles and those in those dresses is is something else. Um, 
But uh, yeah, and Nick the the thing is, is Nick Cage won an Oscar for this movie. And I was because it's been years and years since I've seen this and I I didn't quite remember the nuances of his performance. And the thing is, there's not much nuance to this performance. This is not recognizably a different Nick Cage than you've seen him in almost anything. He has a lot of the same tricks, a lot of the same excesses. It's just this movie fits that perfectly. Yeah. You know, this is a movie that... Uh, um gives him an excuse to have this really broad performance. Um, this kind of like out of control. Um, but, but you also like, you know, there's moments where you can see the man he might've used to be, uh, you oh, know, very sure. charming mm-hmm. and kind of with it, witty. Yeah, uh, Nick Cage particular- is, he's perfect for this role. Yeah. I, I've seen Nick Cage in a lot of movies and a lot of different levels of Nick Cage. He's got like, at least three or four gears. Um, and one of those is like weatherman where he'll pretty much just be, you know, there as a normal human actor. He, he puts on his human suit and he goes into work and he just shows up and does, does the job. Doesn't get too crazy. And then I've seen him in like con air is another one like that, where he's so buttoned up as Nick cage that he's almost not even on the screen. Um, and then I've seen movies like vampires kiss where he's just full on insane or, or, you know, the, the scenes in Mandy where he he goes insane. Uh, this is somewhere in the middle. Like, it's... I don't know. I, I want to give Nick Cage more credit for this performance because I think, like, yes, it does fit his style, but he's also doing a lot of very subtle things um, in in just, like... Well, I don't even know if I call him subtle. Um, portraying the alcoholic is something that I've seen done in many films... Um, right. And it always it's it can be tricky because if you go too far with it, you can come off as just like, oh, well, this is an actor trying to act drunk and being a little silly about it. Nick Cage, I think, draws that line because, like you said, he you do see moments where he his personality kind of shines through the haze. Right. And you can get a sense of like, oh, man, if he if he had had you know, three less drinks right now, he'd be super charming and he'd be the life of the party still. Um, and yeah. everyone would love him. And and ex- the problem here is that he's had too many drinks um, for, you know, the last 20 years of his life or whatever. Uh, and now he doesn't know where he is, let alone like enough to be super charming around anyone. So it, I don't know. He's He's walking that line between like overacting the alcoholic part and not doing enough and it works really well for me like this is the only movie i've seen nicholas cage in that i can go okay maybe he does deserve an oscar for that uh-huh um and i i think you're exactly right like that scene where him and elizabeth shoe are having their first date and he yeah. does this like really nifty like lighting a, a match and and lighting her cigarette it feels like a very meat cute and the whole time he's talking like well you know um, I, I'm, I'm, my drinking kind of in control and you think like, cause you know, we've been watching him for like 30 or 40 minutes. Like, yeah. Oh boy, well, where does this end up going? And then like, you keep on thinking, uh, that you're, you're going to hit rock bottom with him. And there's like two, three different points in the movie where it's like, Oh, this must be what he's talking about. Um, yeah, there's a and, freak out in a, in a casino that I, that I yeah. assume is one of those moments. Yeah. And and I guess in the res- for researching this role, he watched like four famous like alcohol binge movies. Um, there's like one's called Under a Volcano. There's Lost Weekend. That's pretty. F- I actually need to w- watch both of those movies. Um, he actually called up, I guess, the guy or uh, the director called on his behalf the the guy that was uh, the star of Under the Volcano because um, Nick Cage was kind of like, well, maybe I should just spend this whole it's only 28 days this this movie was made for like three million bucks and was shot in 28 days mm. i'll talk more about that later but he's like well maybe i'm gonna spend the whole time blotto and the guy he he said it's like you know your performance is so amazing and natural how did you do it did you get and he's like no i just it's it's acting because if you do that you won't be able to make this film you yeah. won't make your cat you won't make your cast call you won't make your uh y- 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 you'll pass out and lose a whole day and all that kind of stuff you just won't be able to do it but i guess what nick cage did is he got like rip roaring drunk and filmed himself so he huh. could get the cadence and like the way he would slur his speech and kind of get that natural performance but he he said he's it's like finding the limits to 
you know, the performance, you know, the the method acting, because this is the one case where if you tried to do it, you, it would it would it would <laughs> it would be bad for your health, number one. And two, it just make a it would be a, a terrible, a terrible picture. Yeah, he was channeling um, his inner shaman during this performance. That's the I thing. I've come around on him. Like I after doing our film fest, our super serious film fest on Nick Cage sure. and, and seeing like some of his serious movies, some of his ridiculous movies, like he's a good actor. He just makes mm-hmm. bizarre choices a lot of the time. Um, and in yeah. most movies, they don't fit in here. It definitely does. And, and and honestly, I think it's it's on the director and the editor to, you know, uh, decide which palette of Nick Cage they want to paint with because he's got the whole fucking spectrum. Yeah. And if, you know, whatever ends up on stage uh, on screen is is must be what the director was wanting and wanted to keep in the film because he can he can do other things. You know, Raising Arizona is another one pretty reserved. Nick Cage performance, all things uh, uh, being equal. Adaptation is but, one I think of when I think of great Nick Cage. Oh my God. He's so good in that. Yeah. And he plays two characters. They're both night and day different. And none of them feel like, oh, I'm doing this character, so I got to make this other character completely opposite. No, he's just embodying two different people. Yeah, and it's even, it's it's kind of interesting because it's that same kind of the deuce where they're both brothers. So they're not yeah. like opposites of each other. They definitely are you know, shaded with each other's personalities, kind of quirks. But yeah, they are completely different to the point that where you kind of forget that it's a trick, you know, yeah. Uh, just like in the way the, the uh, you, you do in, in watching the deuce. You talk about this reptile shaman shit. <laughs> I don't know if you saw the um, interview with Nick Cage or Roger Ebert did in Nick Cage's hotel room, like right after the premiere. Did you I get a chance to read that? I think I read that one. Yeah. I felt like that's a nice time capsule into Nick Cage, the serious actor, before he started going off into the time displacement reptile shamanism. Like everything yeah. he said about acting and the process of movie making and his insights into the characters and the chemistry between him and Elizabeth Shue, I thought was fucking amazing. Mm-hmm. Um and I don't know the way he's just kept on like crawling up inside his own asshole to where you get the, you know, the 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 kooky stuff or whether he just honestly is a little bit kooky and he doesn't have a filter. And it's been a long time since people said, you know, Nick, uh, maybe you don't talk that way. But I was expect when I saw that, like, oh, he's going to do his interview with Roger Ebert. I was expecting something a little bit more off the rails. It mm-hmm. was just like, you know, an actor's workshop kind of thing with with Roger Ebert. So I, yeah, I okay. highly recommend you look that up um, if you want to uh, check it out. So one of those interviews where you could sort of expect uh, to get some stock answers from somebody in that situation, but he gives like some really genuine, insightful answers. I here's something hmm. I fundamentally disagree with Roger Ebert's take on this movie. He wrote oh, two reviews, one contemporaneously and one that's like you know one of his great movie series where he kind of takes a look back at all the four stars. Um, he he his opinion is the movie is about like unconditional love and uh like the huh. beauty and and people being able to love each other and like i don't agree with that at all because i feel like the second half of this film and maybe now if you haven't seen this movie and you're intrigued you want to get out because we're about to spoil some things here's what's new and premium content for our club members No lunch this week, as I'll be traveling on vacation, but get ready for next week when we have the rare, elusive, dare I say, premium lunch with Talitha and Aaron. And while you're waiting for the return of the king, don't forget May is the time to switch your Patreon tiers to make sure you maintain your full benefits by June. Stop by support.ballmove.com to check your Patreon levels to see the new benefits and decide which one is right for you. And finally, tickets are now on sale for Badass Fest 6. Come meet us live and in person, watch a mystery badass film with us, and then hear us record the podcast right there in front of you in a theater packed with Bald Move fans. Get your details and your tickets at baldmove.com slash live. If you want more Bald Move in your life, head over to support.baldmove.com right now to find out how you can get tons of bonus audio and video content plus ad-free feeds. been listening to quite a few bald move podcasts now but you're not in the club whoo boy you are missing out 
Not only are all of our Premium Club podcast feeds completely ad-free, but we have lots of other great content exclusively for people in the club. There's a weekly lunch with Jim and Aaron where we chat with fans about anything and everything from TV and films, food, fun, life advice, and more. But there's also Off the Clock, our premium podcast where we talk about all the shows we don't have time for on our public feeds. Plus, you get access to our full spoiler-filled first-run movie reviews of our newly released films. Don't forget Instant Take and Talk podcast where we give our hot takes and discuss television shows with our fans live and immediately after the episode airs. With mega shows like House of the Dragon coming this summer, we're going to have lots to talk about. Not to mention access to our fun and friendly community of club members with exclusive Discord channels and a dedicated forum. It's one of the best places on the internet to hang out and chat about pop culture. Bottom line, you're helping two regular type guys in the Midwest make the content you like to listen to, which some would say is rewarding to itself. Help keep the lights on and the bits flowing at Bald Move. And get some awesome content for yourself. Head to support.baldmove.com to join the club today. But I think at the halfway point of this movie, um, the thing that you're afraid of happening or the thing that Nick Cage thinks is going to happen starts happening where they start both sabotaging each other. Sure. And doing things to deliberately hurt each other. Um, and it, I the, the thing is, is like I it's it's not um, there's not a lot of judgment when it, when it comes to that, because they, they both come to their positions honestly and they haven't been telling lies and whatnot. But it's kind of like, you know, hey, you got to promise me you're never going to try to get me to stop drinking. And she's kind of like there's an in and in, 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 in return, I'll never judge you for what you do as far as, you know, hooking for 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 money. And they have about one act of the movie where that kind of goes and and holds. But then when he does, he has his kind of first really serious, you know, uncontrolled drinking binge. Coincidentally, that night she decides to start working, mm-hmm. and then he gives her the gift of these earrings, and says some, un- and then it just it just becomes a cycle of like they each kind of try to reach each other um, and get back to that place, that place where she was his antidote. Um, but like he says, that this that equilibrium is never going to last in this relationship. Yeah, um, I mean, when I see this movie, I think. This is a movie about loneliness. Um, the the uh, you know because Nicolas Cage's character has lost his family, um, and Elizabeth Shue's character Sarah is pretending to be someone every every day. Right? She she doesn't even really know who she is because she pretends to be someone else so often. Um, and so when they find each other, the the these two extraordinarily lonely people just kind of see each other, and. They, there is a love that forms around that. I, is it unconditional? I, I don't know. I mean, I don't think Ebert's wrong in that that is a part of this movie because, you know, these are, these are two people who would be hard to love, I think, um, in the scenarios they're in. And the fact that they do love each other, I, I think they love each other. Um, it is, is maybe, you know, a little bit unconditional there. Uh, but to me, it's ultimately about, these these two very sad, very lonely people coming together. Why, I why did they get together? I mean, I, I get the idea that Elizabeth Sh- or um, Nick Cage's fascination with Elizabeth Shue is because he so clearly has a type. You know, you see a picture of his ex wife. Yeah. You see the picture of the women that like he's instantly kind of attracted to, and he makes these clumsy passes at. She is essentially like that form perfected. Um, and then you see like, you know, he has this intense, I think it's, you're, you're, you're supposed to understand it's a fantasy and it turns out it's a, it's a, it's a direct quote from the novel mm-hmm. that he's, uh, he's in line at his bank and there's this blonde and he's talking about, oh, I could love you if you pour liquor over your breasts, if you dripped bourbon between your legs and let me lick it off. I'd love, and as soon as I saw Elizabeth Shue walking down the street and she was like, you know, this little therapy, they have this little device where every once in a while they cut to like 60 seconds of her on the couch with a the therapist, I think. Yeah. Which she talks about how. Yeah. Where she where she talks about how that's kind of her superpower that she can become. She intuits any man's sexual desire and becomes that. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. well, she, there's she's clearly going to become this bourbon fountain woman for him. Um, and fulfill that fantasy and ends up doing it. Um, but 
why why does so so i understand why he has this fixation on her what is what's the deal do you think what what's the other direction with uh, elizabeth shoe i thought it was fascinated that he didn't want anything from her like i uh, other than just to stay like and it's the same thing she wanted um she wanted someone to stay right there's a line um later on where she asks him to stay and that's all she wants um and earlier in the movie he said the same thing to her um like he he goes the the first time they meet you know it's it's on the street whatever um and he goes and he he looks for her later and offers her money to sleep with him because obviously she's you know a prostitute um and and when they get to the room he doesn't want to have sex right he just wants someone to be there and i think she sees that and she's like oh we're kindred spirits and, and she does during these therapy sessions, like try to figure that out, but she's never able to put her finger on it. What did you think of these therapy sessions? I, I kind of found myself at the end of the movie when I was thinking about it, wondering if the movie wouldn't have been stronger. I know one of the um, one of the producers, one of the money guys on this movie requested the director uh, Figgis to take it out. And he sat down and watched it and said, nope, this is r- crucial to the movie. Since most of those scenes are her kind of struggling to put things in the words that don't ever actually connect, um, I, I kept on wondering what that movie would be like without those scenes in it. Because um, and it's not that they're distracting or whatever; they're just not of a piece of this movie. They're um, it, it feels a lot like the black and white scenes in Memento, where it's like you know the movie's kind of going in a certain gear and a certain stretch, and he hit this very different thing. Mm-hmm. In in Memento, it's 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 doing something. It's providing you a key, a Rosetta Stone, to understand the bizarre out of sequence events. And this, it's just like we're just going to stop the movie and start telling instead of showing. And I don't know that I I, I don't know that I like it. Um, yeah, I don't know that I needed it. Um, right. Like I like I said, there there are scenes in the movie where she says what she wants, and she's not intentionally like trying to do that. But she does it anyway. Um, and I, yeah, you, you might be right. I, I don't know that I needed those. But they also weren't super distracting. I, I didn't find myself going, oh, God, another one of these scenes. No, 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 not like that. It's just more of kind of like, uh, you know, I'm trying trying to uh, trim the fat off of this Oscar winning, uh, intense, <laughs> soul searing performance here, you know? You know, yeah. if I was editing this thing. Well, the movie didn't um, win an Oscar, is all I'm saying. Nicolas Cage did. <laughs> But there's a lot of other weird decisions, I thought, like um, introducing her pimp. And uh-huh. then because I'm thinking that as I was watching this again, I was like, man, I don't even remember this guy being in this movie. And it's like, well, there's got to be some kind of violent confrontation between him and Nick Cage or, you know, like, I like, how does this resolve? And it literally just resolves itself as you go from yeah. like the one act to the other. And I'm like, well, like um, he might be in some kind of trouble with the some kind of gang and they come and like eliminate him. Yeah. But right before that, he says like, I don't want to see you again. I, but I, I wonder if some weird. of that stuff felt redundant because I've seen the deuce and it feels like that stuff was all like, um, you know, a person going in to watch leaving Las Vegas comes in with a certain amount of assumptions about al- alcoholism and about prostitution. And those are like, you know, kind of the, you know how how we understand uh, these things and how they work out in society, and I'm like, I thought it was it was bizarre to set up this conflict about like, but I I also think it. The more I think about it, the more I think about how they're trying to set up Elizabeth Shue and mm-hmm. Nick Cage's characters as mirrors. Yeah, yeah, you know, he is like in the beginning of this film, Nick Cage is in the self destructive pattern. And he has a moment where he could free himself mm-hmm. like his his boss has finally had enough. They love the guy, but he's causing so much problems that they're going to fire him and give him this insanely generous uh, um, uh, severance package. that He could spend and not work a couple years and get himself sober and, and, and do anything he wants. But what he wants to do is go to Las Vegas and drink himself to death. Mm-hmm. Elizabeth Shue is trapped in this other situation that she can't get out of. She can't see any possible way out. She's already tried to run away from this guy and he tracks her down and, and gets gets into her even deeper. And then suddenly she's free. She's free and she has all this money and she can do anything that she wants to do. But what is she going to do? Enable this guy to drink himself to death. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe that's the like the, the, like like uh, that's her severance check. 
that's her like ticket out of here. That's where in a different kind of movie, her story takes like an upward to, but instead, you know, she, uh, she, this, and it's, it's also kind of weird how Nick Cage brings her down with him a bit. Like she's able yeah. this lifestyle to live in a nice apartment and a nice community and have nice things. And by the end of it, she has been evicted. She's homeless. There's this, crazy shot of her sitting on the curb Sharon Stone style just not giving a fuck about who sees her or what she does um there's that yeah, scene it's... where like the way he compulsively drinks is mirrored by the way she um you know Ebert is of the opinion I kind of think I agree with him that her taking on that job with the drunk fresh the drunk college guys was kind of being self-destructive like it breaks all the rules that she set up in the movie but she's like doing it to kind of punish herself in the same way that there is some kind of punishment that, you know, that, that Nicholas Cage is going through in this movie. Yeah. I feel like you need, you need those scenes though, because like, if you take those scenes out, what's left of Elizabeth Shue's character, right? Like if you take out the scenes with Yuri, um, yeah, you don't get the stuff about the cuts. You don't get the stuff about like her running from Los Angeles to LA to, get the hell away from this guy because there's a bad scene there. Um, you take out the stuff with the therapist. You don't get her really struggling to comprehend why she likes this guy. She, her character just becomes so less dynamic, um, so less three-dimensional. Uh, so you needed something there, and those scenes, I think, were were not amazing, but they, they definitely prov- provided something to the film um, and her character. Yeah. And you just yeah you needed you needed something and just in the same way that we needed those first fifteen minutes of seeing Nick uh, Nicholas Cage he hasn't quite given up yet yeah you know he's still trying to show up to his job he's still trying to take meetings he's still trying to uh, form relationships with people um, you need to see kind of like what her whole deal is and how she's gotten to this point and what she's you know um, and so so you're you're probably right. I did think there's a lot of fact because like we don't really know what caused this and the movie in itself doesn't deal with it. Like there's this line I thought was brilliant with Nick Cage where he says, I can't remember if I my wife left me because yeah. I started drinking or I started drinking because my wife left me. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was like an incredibly insightful quote of where he and, and it, it reminded me of something he said in that interview with Ebert, where he said, and my take on this guy is he's under so much, such an enormous amount of pain that he's decided I'm just not going to feel anything ever again. Yeah. Like, I'm just not even going to go one moment of life sober and, and let myself feel any of this, of this overwhelming pain. And I thought that was uh, and another, there's, there's a lot of this kind of like dualist dialogue. Where, you know, in that first date that she has with him, she says, is those drinking a way of killing yourself? And he says, well, maybe killing myself is a way of drinking. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought that was. Um, she's like, oh, very clever. <laughs> uh, it, yeah. Th- there's. Yeah. That self-destructive tendency. The way they spool out his story is really good. Like they're they never have a scene where he like sits down with Sarah and tells her. Oh, here's what happened, you know, in my my previous yeah. life. Uh, my wife left right. me. She took my kid. But you get all this through just like a photograph, the line that that you mentioned where he says, you know, I don't know if she left me because I was drinking or I was drinking and she left me. Um, and then that line when he's flipping the tables at the casino and he's shouting, I'm his father. Like, that's a moment where the pain flashes through, right? He's tr- He's as drunk as he's ever fucking been. He's not going to feel anything. And yet here it is bubbling out. Uh, yeah. every crevice that there is. So you get the sense that like this is this is completely futile. He's feeling it anyway, right? More intensely than uh-huh. he's ever felt it. And this is just that self-destructive behavior you've been talking about. It reminds me of like an, a person suffering from Alzheimer's where they have these moments of clarity where the full horror. Um, I used to, you know, my I saw my grandfather go through that one of these one one um uh, a day. It's like where it's like they get this lucidity of like Jesus Christ, is this what my life has become? Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like that, like that captured the kind of um, just violent whirlwind that these people put themselves into the whole like, you know, he's happy. He's having the time. They're having the time of their lives gambling. And then he goes to this bizarre burst of anger that then triggers this insane uh, thing of, of shame and and deep, deep sorrow. But the thing is, it's like um, 
It's like having your wisdom teeth extracted and the doctor knocks you out. It's a painful, traumatic experience. He's got his fucking shoe on your forehead yanking, but you're not in and but you're not going to remember any of that stuff because you're drugged up. Right. Like yeah. He goes he, he, he went through all that pain in a moment. But the next day he can't like, oh, you know, I remember going to the casino and I remember security kind of getting there. But I honestly don't remember any of it. So it's like mm. it was the pain real uh, if you if you didn't go through it. Yeah, and it sort of uh, gives you an indication of why he might not remember uh, why his wife left him, right? <laughs> like, yeah, he, he was probably drunk at the time. He was probably very drunk. Yeah, yeah. So, getting to one of my problems with the the therapist scenes with with um, Elizabeth Shue, because uh, obviously, as, as we've surmised, the whole idea is to kind of get into her headspace, and I don't feel like she's being honest at some points, especially at the end. You know, she's talking, she's trying to put a bow on her relationship with Ben. And she says, you know, the thing is, is uh, he just understood me. He didn't expect me to change. And I felt like that was not true, not true at all. And it's something I feel like is what Roger Ebert was taken from this movie, when, where I just saw that these people um, were definitely and I don't know who started what, because that's, that's something that would be interesting to go through a second one. But like there is this at one point in the movie, this cycle of like, well, he's drinking she she thought he was going to be this type of drunk and he's this other type of drunk and it's a problem for her. So she's going to go out hooking. So he's going to get her a set of earrings uh, so that she can re- wear and 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 feel guilty. Like he even says, like, I hope this like burns your ear when you're with this other man. Mm-hmm. And then but she's going to go out anyway. So he's going to get drunk and he's going to go out and bring the whole movie you know, she's got this gift, this gift of sexuality that she tries to share with him the entire movie. He, 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 he I don't think shit other than on his deathbed. Did they ever have sex? I don't think so. But he goes out to the strip and brings a hooker back to her bedroom is mm. having sex with her. And it's just like, you know, and she eventually kicks him out. Um, I don't know. Is this another, uh, is this another kind of statement on like denial and what it does for, you know, enabling and enabling your own destructive behavior and whatnot. What's what's the deal with that? Uh, I'm honestly not 100 percent sure. I, I know that there are moments where uh, he definitely knows what he's doing uh, when he, you know, gives her that earring. That's certainly a kind of a hey, I don't like what you're doing uh, moment. And then, and I want you to know about it. Yeah, I definitely want you. I, I want you to remember it. I want you to wear it. Uh, yeah, and then there are other moments where, like, bringing that other prostitute back to his house, I or her house rather. I don't even think he's aware that he did that. I think he's so drunk he he doesn't know that anything's even happening here. Um, hmm. But that that was just it, my read on it. Maybe that's not true, but yeah, about. I don't know. It's it's uh, I he, that's the thing I guess about people that do this kind of the this this binge drinking, and it's like are they aware of the specific behavior that they're doing or is it they're drinking to give themselves license for the behavior or is it just they're drinking to do to numb the pain and that just because like honestly when I watch this movie I'm thinking Jesus Christ there but for the grace of God go I because I have a lot yeah. <laughs> I have a lot of emotional and uh, behavioral issues mine are uh, uh, like compulsive behaviors about like you know uh, if I'm worried or stressed about something I tend to put it off you know and I put it off with video games I put it off with mindless yeah. certain you know scrolling through Twitter watching YouTube videos and every once in a while I have this like flash of like oh Jesus Christ what if I put this off too long and a lot of times I can I can dig myself out of there and like force myself to do the work. And it's like, it's something I've been doing since I've been a teenager. It started within the mm-hmm. fucking high school. Um, and honestly, if I didn't have to do a podcast like on this particular day or, or, or Jim would show up and I wouldn't be prepared and people like I, this is, this is, this is a healthy routine for me is what I'm saying. Right. Right. But I think it's like, instead of like reaching for a game pad or my cell phone, if I reach for a bottle mm-hmm. or a pipe or a syringe, I would be fucked something because those moments of that. Yeah. Yeah, because those moments of panic, because I sometimes have those moments of panic and just like redouble my distraction, right? Because like I just can't yeah. fucking like I'm I, I was going to bring on a panic attack if I deal with it. Um, and if I and that's just like a luck of the draw kind of thing. Like if I it, if I had that history in my family or as a pattern, it's like, oh, I'm feeling bad. I'm let's have a drink. How the hell do you ever recover from that? Yeah, um, that's that's what I looked uh, at with Elizabeth's shoes oh, with Sarah's predicament in this movie. Um, because she, 
when she goes and she she kicks him out and then she goes out that night and she gets mixed up with these college kids who beat her um and rape her and uh you know her she she spends the next 10 15 minutes of the movie just destroyed i view that as like the the fluke the 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 happenstance you know the chance that could just destroy anyone's life um and and it's it's interesting because like if you are a high functioning person you know you have a, you have a uh one one thing that happens to you that you had no control over sets you back a little bit and and you fix it and you move on but if you have habits that compound those those destructive qualities of an event like that Mm-hmm. It could send you into a death spiral, and it literally does. In the case of mm-hmm. of Ben, in this movie, um, you know his his wife left him. He it, maybe he was drinking the time, maybe he wasn't. You know he's he's so foggy he doesn't even know. Um, but yeah, that sent him on a trajectory that he's compounding, and he's powerless, seemingly to do anything about it because of the habits that he has, like you said. Yeah, and man, I tell you what, uh, usually I like to search for like movie titles and then like Reddit to see kind of like what the movie groups and stuff. I went down a dark hole of like r slash problem drinking and r slash oh, uh, yeah. alcoholic depression and r slash stop drinking and people's personal relationships to this movie. And there's this, oh, Jesus Christ, there's this one kid who said, like, from the time he was in, like, freshman year of college, he had this ritual where he would start watching this movie and he would match Nick Cage drink for drink. Oh. And then he would pass out. Usually, he said, uh-huh. usually I would I would get to, like, I, I would, if I was lucky, I would make it to the scene where he's, like whistling you know like when he gets laid off and he's at the liquor store and he's just like doing a supermarket sweep of all this booze like i'd get to that point i'd pass out and then it's like several hours later later i'd wake up and i'd rewind to the place in the movie where i passed out and i would just do it again and i would just do that as like a a a daily a daily ritual and he did that from the time he was like 21 till 32 and there's all this other stuff like these these um it's just Fuck. really it's it's harrowing, man. It like really shook me. I spent like an hour reading these different experiences, these people's uh, personal relationships as this movie. And it's wild. Like people were like uh, one of the things I saw in the trivia is that like um, Nick Cage never eats in this movie. And I guess that's also very common for alcoholics because they spend a per- they're they're either super hungover or yeah. they don't want to, you know, get they don't want food get in the way of the alcohol absorbing their system. Or they're going um, and there's withdrawals a couple, and don't feel like eating, yeah, and there's, yeah. And there's a there's like this this one like really um, crazy thing in the movie where she gets him some food and he acts like he's going to eat it, but then he takes the chopstick and he like eats an ice cube instead. Because uh, mm-hmm. I didn't notice the fact he didn't eat the entire movie, but I noticed that and I'm like, oh god, this is. Uh, this is this is bad news, but I guess yeah, that's another thing that the the a lot of alcoholics identified with, and, and it's a um, cycle too. You know the the shame that comes along with having a a problem uh, with drinking. I think can, you know feeds back into the drinking problem, right? And causes you yeah, to man, do it substance more. Abuse. It's it's and there's yeah yeah like I know that I'm also a, a chronic procrastinator, um, and luckily it's mm-hmm. not it's not so detrimental to my life that I can't function. Um, but but I understand that like the 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 guilt and shame you feel over doing that just causes it to get worse um, mm-hmm. and, and causes you to be more dysfunctional. Yeah, and you make all these bargains with yourself, and if you then add something that's got your mind fuzzy and the, the on top of that, it's just like how yeah how do you ever how do you ever crawl out of that? Yeah. Um, and there's this other like you know these again these these dual scenes. Like of, you know, her getting thrown out of the casino with him. And then there's this other setting where um, they she goes to this this getaway and it looks like they're going to have a good time. And she becomes she finally becomes his booze bourbon angel um, and they're going to have sex. And then he falls through his plate glass thing, cuts himself up real bad. And this lady comes out and throws her out in the nicest way. And like she kind of like for the first time sees herself in this. Mm hmm. Like, you know, it's it's no longer she's the one apologizing for the behavior. She's now the screw up, too, with her, her loud drinking her loud conversations and her. Lo- 
And like I said, I mean, some of this stuff is like I had to watch through like fingers, you know, like it's it's just the 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 yeah, like I the secondhand shame and embarrassment was almost lethal, let alone actually being in that situation. And she seems um, more resilient than Ben, um, especially in the early goings of this movie. Like she is able to, to to function pretty well. You know, she recognized the situation she was in. She tried to get out of it with Yuri. Right. She moved to a different city um, to try and, and better her life. And it followed her. And I think that's that's something too, right? It probably feels like when you have a, a habit, a problem like that, that it follows you around and you can't escape it. Uh, literally, yeah, the other, in this the other case. thing. The other thing I think that the therapy scenes do is because I I get the impression that these are after Ben's died. Yeah, is it's a little bit of a silver lining to the movie that like you know Ben is a human shipwreck and he's going to sink right to the bottom, but mm. she was able to get out from that undertow, find a lifeboat, and start engaging in healthy you know talking about the things, engaging in healthy behaviors, seeing a therapist. Um, she looked she looked healthy in those scenes, uh, and without those scenes like. Yeah, this is an even bleaker movie. And I know that those scenes, like you said, were added for the film. So what is the book must just be a brutal, a brutal depiction of alcoholism. Like, and, I mean, you know, the guy killed himself after the movie options were uh, the movie was optioned. That, that was like four years after he finished this novel. And uh-huh. uh, apparently, like his father said, when they were making this movie, he told them, look, this is his suicide note. You know, get it, get it right. Like, yeah, it's and it, I, it's dark. There was I was that was where I was going to get take it to next because I one of the when I was going through all these um, drinking subreddits and these people's relationship to this movie, people quoted long passages from this book, and it's kind of very Jack Kerouac stream mm. of consciousness again. That 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 uh, that dialogue that Nick Cage has in line at the teller where he's talking about you know if oh I can only lick the alcohol and make you clean and then send you off to fuck other men like that's literally stuff from the book. It's very bleak. Uh, and this guy wrote two other books that he never finished because of the alcoholism and his sister, I guess, finished them and they were, they were published posthumously, but, Mm -hmm. um, the director, yeah, there was like, you know, when this guy killed himself two weeks after they bought the movie, there was kind of like, should we even do this? Is this like a cursed project? Um, and I guess like this guy's family was very supportive in making it and they decided that they were going to do this as kind of like a tribute to, to John O'Brien. Um, and use this to try to get everything just right. And there's a lot of weird coincidences. Like, I guess Nick Cage happened to pick out the same watch that John O'Brien actually owned this uh, 93 Daytona. I probably wasn't the exact year. He drove the exact make and model of BMW that this guy had just as like choices that he made. And his dad said, you know, John, that was John's actual. Um, And like, I guess like Nick Cage was kind of freaked out by how, like cosmic those coincidences were. Um, you you yeah. can see a little bit of the lizard shaman. <laughs> For sure. Even, yeah. Even back in 95. Um, but yeah, they all, they like this movie almost didn't get made. Um, mm-hmm. And the way it did get made is extremely gorilla. He made it for $3 million uh, or $3.6 million shot in 28 days on location. They used 16 millimeter film to keep the cost down and to keep it because they didn't get permits for any of the shot of the mm-hmm. Vegas strip. So it's just like a lot of these were just single takes. Like you, you guys got this take and then we're going to run because the cops are on their way. Yeah. Uh, and it looks like that. It does look like, and I think that works too, because there's this like, it's funny because, you know, when I was growing up, Vegas was always romanticized in like the Rat Pack days where you mm-hmm. had the old strip with the cowboy waving to you and all that. And I realized watching this movie, this is another era of Vegas that's already gone. This is the era like right after yeah. the mafia got kicked out and it went legit. But before they had all the family friendly bullshit that is like it's now mm-hmm. kind of like Disney World and adult strippers all stacked on top of each other. This was all that just it was it was now a legit enterprise. Your hands are going to get busted with hammers if you try to count cards. But they don't have the like gondola rides and the zip lines and all this other like all all, all that other bullshit. It's just it's just Vegas, man. Um, and that Vegas doesn't exist anymore. Just like the old Vegas doesn't exist. They turned the old Vegas into a tourist trap version of the old Vegas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I thought this kind of the old timey feel, the 16 millimeter and, um, the director himself uh, talked about how that like gives it like, um, uh, 
uh, like almost pastel palette because the 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 colors are not quite as crisp as you're, you're used to a 35 millimeter, especially the new digital processes is a little bit softer. Um, I just thought it really suited it and made it feel like, yeah, this takes place in 1995. But like there's some movies like we just watched The Professional. That yeah. thing looks 90s as fuck. Uh-huh. The hair, the dress. This kind of has that timeless feel. Um, I don't think it was deliberate, but it's just, you know, um, it's a guy who is not concerned about looking stylish and a prostitute that's wearing a prostitute costume mm-hmm. and kind of like no man's Vegas. No, uh, you just this this time capsule Vegas. And it and the, I thought I thought it looked great. And the fact that, you know, the, you mentioned it, that they just kind of smash and grabbed these shots uh, when it rolled into Vegas, you know, put a camera on a tripod, said action and then ran. Mm-hmm. Uh, that gives it a feeling like you're actually there, too. It's not it's not a, a staged thing, right, where they've got they've paid a whole bunch of extras to walk through the shot in a very particular way. Um, it's just people being people. And sometimes you can see them turning around, looking at the camera, right? Um, mm-hmm. Like almost a like a documentary style feel at times. Um, and the low mm-hmm. film quality helps with that. Uh, yeah, it all comes together really well. The the score too, which we haven't talked about. Michael Figgis or Mike Figgis. I don't know if his full name is Michael. Uh, super talented guy, apparently. He wrote the, the screenplay here, uh, adapted it from the book. He directed the film and he wrote and, and, and composed most of the score of this film, apparently. Which... To me is like, oh, okay, you're you're the triple threat, right? You can, you know, you can't sing, act, and dance, but you can write, direct, and and score. And like, holy shit, mm-hmm. uh, the score is so good too. It's all, it's like this this blending of blues. It kind of starts out with one tone and ends up with another tone, right? It goes blues to jazz to something else entirely. It's like operatic because because yeah. like Nick Nick Cage during that one scene where he picks up the hooker uh, starts singing. <laughs> right. What what is like Figaro or is he's he's doing I, I don't I, I don't know exactly opera, which one yeah. but and I guess that was a, a choice that Nick Cage made and I think it informed the score because the yeah. guy's like shit. Yeah. Now it's a, it's going to turn into opera for yeah. sure. And it works. You know, it takes me through the the phases here of of how I should be feeling right. Like at the beginning, you can almost feel like, Oh, well you're on this kind of fun ride, but it's sad. And there's the blues tone. And the jazz is like, yeah, they don't know what's going on here. Right. They're in this relationship that they're just trying to feel out. It's like improvisational. It's, a, it's, it's loose like there's, at there's times. All, yeah. And it feels like it's, it's good. It's a collaboration. They're working together. Right. It's, it's the, like you said, it's, you feel like the antidote. I feel, I feel like uh-huh. I want to live again, but it's, it's not going to last. And then it turns into tragedy, right? The opera comes in and yeah. Their actual sex scene is one of the most sad things I've ever seen. <laughs> like it yeah. feels like, uh, you know, that scene in seven where the dude has been strapped to the bed, like, uh, mm-hmm. uh, this, the sloth Force fed. Yeah. No, not the, not the glutton, but the sloth oh. where it's like, he's like withered to a skeleton. Um, I oh, feel like Elizabeth yeah. shoe fucked that dude. Uh, and I was watching it. It's just grim. I mean, he's actively dying during this. It's like, yes, yeah, yeah, it's it's no good, no good at all. Yeah, um, and it, I think it's perfectly played by Nick Cage. Like, I don't know what it looks like to die of of liver damage and alcohol poisoning, but I imagine it could look something like this. Um, where that's that's one of the things I you don't often see a portrayal, and I think Nick Cage was talking about this when he did that interview with Ebert. It's hard to get a hold of footage of like withdrawals from alcohol like the the symptoms of that Mm -hmm. right um and what happens to the human body because like yeah you can get it with it's not and heroin and shit (laughs) yeah but it's all like very similar you know it's Mm -hmm. it's the body dealing with not having a substance it needs and so it's convulsing Mm -hmm. it's sweating it's uh it's trying to failing yeah it's trying to kickstart itself and also export these toxins that it's got in it it's it's, it's bad news. And I think like this is the most intense and I assume accurate portrayal of something like that that I've ever seen. That's one of the most uh, Jesus. That was one of the most harrowing threads I read on r slash crippling alcoholism is someone said, is it possible to drink yourself to death like it's uh, shown in leaving Las Vegas? And there's all these people said like, no, 
you you literally like yes, but it'll take you fifteen years. You're not going to do it in four right, weeks right. or two weeks or whatever. Well, I get the and, impression, or that he's are people been doing saying that, like, though. yeah, like people people said like, well, I've I've tried you know to do it for, and it's like it's actually surprisingly hard, and it's also like you know they they talked to, and then I read this this particular thread was from nine years ago. And I was thinking, like, Jesus Christ, where is this person, the, this thread starter that was like wanting to do this? Like, what what's going on with them now? It's like, it's like, uh, yeah, I don't know. It feels like going through a haunted house. Some of those threads, because um, you know, like, you know what the the alcoholism recidivism rate is. It's not good. Like, even if you get help and do all that stuff, like, I think the best is like you know twenty twenty five percent. Mm. Uh, so you just go through and like you think about okay, you made it, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't, you made it, you didn't, you didn't, you didn't. Yeah. Uh, fuck, man. Like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, this is it's, a real bummer of a movie to watch and research for that for that reason. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but it's it's also a hell of a movie. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a window into a sort of life that uh, quite a few people have. Um, that is something entirely alien and yet also very familiar to me. Like, like mm-hmm. you said with the, everybody's got issues, you know, that they deal with, I think. Um, and some are more crippling than others. Uh, some are more debilitating, but this is a particularly nasty one. The, the, it really, yeah. any type of substance abuse is, is a tough yeah. one. It really is. Um, the one other thing I want to say about this movie is out of nowhere, Lori Metcalf, uh, Roseanne Barr's sister from the old Roseanne show, um, comes in as the landlady and does like. This is who you're picking. There's so many fucking cameos in this movie, and you're going with the yeah, sister I'm going with of Roseanne's Rose- sister okay. because I thought number one, like for the first half of the movie, or for the the for most of the second act, she's comic relief, uh-huh. you know. Yeah. And then she becomes, I guess, like the villain. And I just like wonder is like, can you can you kick someone out like that? I guess like if you're if it's a prostitute, then there's not much they can do because Right, gonna go to the law. You can just yeah, you just you just yeah, well you're an outlaw, so I can do whatever the fuck I want with you. Um but I thought she was she was really good as playing this like proto Karen landlady. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh all right, all right, smart guy. What's your what's your cameo? I mean, Arlie Ermey's in this. Xander Berkeley's in this. Wait, whoa, uh, whoa, Lou whoa! Brawl's in this. Where where is Arlie Ermey in this movie? He's Are the guy who turns me? her down in the bar. Yeah, she goes in and she tries to start hooking again. The one he, that she he's the the guy who's from. He said, "Oh, is it that obvious?" I mean, oh, I did not know. No, that. He's, he's the guy who makes the big scene when she tries to come on to him, right, and says, "Hey, you want yeah, go yeah, yeah." Me? I had no idea. How did I not know that? I have no idea, man. You It's dark. I didn't get a huh. like, you know, like no. He does God look a little damn. different. He looks a little bit like a wolf man. He's got a beard. Uh his hair is darker than you're used to seeing probably. Right, cuz I'm used to seeing it high and tight, it's kind uh-huh. of silver fox, clean shaven. It's longer Granite for cliff. sure. He's wearing a suit huh. which you're probably not used to. He also wasn't screaming in the beginning. Like I remember, yeah. yeah, I can I remember the performance. I just I cannot place his face on that. Wild. Hmm. Uh Xander Berkeley is is a cab driver who gives her shit uh oh yeah who yeah, we just like saw a, in gattaca not not even a week ago i think yeah supposedly they had him do a uh a, a blues song like in the car and uh uh figus cut it because he thought it was a little indulgent okay um who else uh richard uh who's the guy that's in curb your enthusiasm uh lewis richard lewis is in he's he oh, plays yeah, like yeah. one of his uh, talent agent friends that kind of gives him one last uh, one last loan before throwing him beginning. out the yeah um, uh, Lou, Lou is it Rawls um, also had like a song that I think they cut as well um, oh that's the one I'm talking I thought you were talking about him I don't know who, who's who's the Xander guy then Xander Berkeley he plays a uh, fuckface Gregory in Walking Dead <laughs> oh right yes yeah. yes 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 um, uh, I also, there's another piece of trivia is like no alcohol company would allow them to, to shoot their alcohol. So like they had to like, did like change the negatives to like flip the bottles, like reverse them or make them negative. So they were disguised. Uh, yeah. another thing is, uh, um, I guess I, I kept on seeing these red mullet, um, things on yeah. the taxis and I'm like, what the fuck is this? And it turns out that's Mike Figgis's production company and that face that you saw on it, that's his face. Okay. 
Hmm. Yeah, I thought that was a fun little fun little detail. There are a lot of other people here. Uh, like I think John Lennon's son is in this movie. Um, the, there's, I don't even know all the cameos. There, there are so many people in this from the '90s that you probably know. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think. Olivia is it? Um, oh, French uh, Stewart is in this briefly. Is he? Where's he? Yeah, he's. Um, I, I want to say it's when Yuri first shows up. Uh, he's credited as businessman number two. Um, so oh, this okay. must have been before okay. 30 Rock. Otherwise, he probably would have got an actual part. Sure. Um, or not not 30 uh, Rock. Sorry, Third Rock from the Sun. Mariska Hargitay. Uh-huh. Uh, she's the main lady from um, Law & Order SVU. She's the, the, the hooker that he brings back to... Elizabeth Shue's house and and tries to have sex with there there are a lot of yeah there there there's a lot of cameos but um I mean the 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 movie is all about this Elizabeth Shue and Nick Cage like it's like the cast list is pretty pretty uh, uh, trim as far as like you know oh, yeah. actual people they're in it for and whatnot maybe a few minutes at a time uh the, yeah. the other thing about this movie I want to talk briefly is about the success of this movie um mm. so. Obviously, we've talked about Nick Cage winning an Oscar for this film. It's the only one he's ever won for. He's been nominated one other time for adaptation. Uh, didn't win that, though. This movie was actually up for four Oscars. Nicolas Cage is the only one who won. Um, Elizabeth Shue was also up for an Oscar this year uh, for this movie, but she lost to Susan Sarandon and Dead Man Walking. Uh, best director for Mike Figgis, uh, he lost this year to Mel Gibson for Braveheart. And the best adapted screenplay by Mike Figgis, he lost to Emma Thompson for Sense and Sensibility. Uh, so only one Oscar won, but four nominations. And in the box office, it was a success. They, like you said, they did it for just under $4 million, um, for this entire film, and it went on to make like $50 million worldwide. So wow, it's a 10x, 10x investment, not bad. This Mike Figgis, I looked at his, he does a lot of just experimental art house indie films. I, his filmography is, I have, I have no idea. He's had huh. one or two things that I think were studio, but I have, I, I kind of heard one or two of them, but I've never seen a single thing he's ever done. Um, he actually, I think directed a couple episodes of the Sopranos. Like he did a couple of TV things oh, yeah. that I, I heard, but, um, yeah, I, it's, it's 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 wild, you know. Usually when I see something like this, this author, it's like, you know, especially from 95, they'll have done other things. And I haven't, I, he has, he's done a lot. He's had a long career. It's just mm -hmm. all really weird, low-budget experimental stuff like this, this movie itself. Um, yeah, so kind of a one-hit wonder uh, a little bit. <laughs> yeah, certainly in the circles we run in. I'm sure he's well-known in other circles. I did think it was hilarious to see Nick Cage screaming snake eyes in the <laughs> in this movie because, of course, he's right. in a movie called Snake Eyes later. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, and he's yeah. in a very Nick Cage moment there. Yeah. What do you do if you divide... What do you do when you divide 16 millimeter by two? <laughs> <laughs> Eight millimeter! Yeah, he oh starts screaming. I feel, like I'm, I feel like I'm between a, the rock and a hard place and... I, I looked it up. I what couldn't is find this, any some kind of con air. I couldn't find any information about uh, Sting's role in this soundtrack because he has a couple of songs, this Lonesome Old Town thing or whatever, and then yeah. also Angel Eyes. And I didn't know if he wrote these for the film or if it was just they picked a couple of Sting songs they liked. Don Henley also has a song in this, so mm. yeah, yeah. I don't. Know. I, uh, I don't. I don't know anything about that either. I did see that the Figus did the the music design. Um, but it's yeah. great. I, like I said, it's one of those things where it's like it's a great film, but holy hell, I can't imagine watching it. I, I might want to watch it a one more time, or boy, I tell you, if I could find a director's commentary or a Nick Cage commentary, I'd watch the hell out of that. Yeah, but it's one of those things where it's like, man, I don't. I if I watch it one more time in my life, it's probably going to be enough uh -huh. because it's just it's just so sad. And I think that the more like I don't know, it'd be interesting to watch it one more time knowing exactly what happens and like trying to like, you know, chart each kind of like way station in his way to oblivion. But that's what it is. It's a uh, poof. Oof. It's a uh, uncompromising. It's bleak. So it's mm -hmm. a hard watch. 
Well, that's going to do it for our talk about leaving Las Vegas. We're left. We left. Actually, we've made it this whole fucking podcast without mentioning Cheryl Crow once. Did we? I think it was one we did at the beginning, but we also did it before uh, the podcast started. So I don't know. As far as I know, no relation. There is absolutely zero relation between. I I heard there is my head because I can't look at the title of this movie without hearing that song in my head. That that album came out like one year before the movie came out, and uh, I th- there was rumors or I saw some kind of threads that people said that it, that that song itself was based on the novel. I can't imagine. I can't imagine. There's, I, there's I don't know. I I went down a minor Cheryl Crow hole while researching this movie because I love that album mm-hmm. so much. And sure, it's a great album. I had it stuck in my head. Obviously, mm-hmm. uh, apparently Tuesday Night Music Club, which is the title of that album, is like a. It was spawned from this group gathering that they used to have of artists, like not necessarily just musicians, but like lyricists, poets, uh, writers, musicians. Mm. Um, and and the, the album is mostly like pieces of those things kind of stuck together. Um, and they call it Tuesday Night Music Club because they got together on Tuesday nights. Well, that's uh, that is, is definitely we are leaving Las Vegas like Sheryl Crow. Uh, yeah. and we'll be back next week, uh, not with a prestige, although it's always a little bit of a the discussion when we're talking about this movie. Uh, the next installment of The Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, We've got another commissioned podcast. Uh, so if you want to see our movie, uh, if you want to see our movie for next week, you're gonna have to check it out on Bald Move Pulp. Until then, I'm Aaron, I'm Jim. See ya. <laughs>